Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Inviting me here, and I was so pleasantly surprised to find out that this lecture is part of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Services, a learning series, because Carl Jayberg, who is the father of, I think, whomever it is that endowed this series, was a very, very good friend of mine. He, I ran a small museum, and he was one of the docents, and one of my very favorite people. So if any of you know the Jaybergs who live here in Arizona, and I remember him coming out here quite often to see his family, I hope you will remember me to them. Um, now, I hope you can all see this. I was so happy that um, all these uh, PowerPoint presentations now, they give you options for making your slides look much prettier. And I've done it a few times, and what happens is, Whoever did this, set this up, must have been about 16 years old, because every time I do it and it comes up, you can't read a thing. They have all the letters really tiny. So I tried to make the slides large. If you can't see them, let me know, and I will interpret for you. OK. So the backdrop for this story is, of course, the Second World War and the attempt to bring refugees from Europe. I was part of an exhibition about this topic several years ago at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and the, the slide, the, the material for the um, labels, I think you can all read. Um, there was an international refugee crisis that escalated through the 1930s. And I must say, when I came here, I really had not thought about any connection to the today and the refugee uh, issues that we have now, but being in Arizona, I guess this take, really takes on new meaning, and particularly since this is a story about the power of individuals, about people who, who did something about the situation. So people reached out to relatives, family, friends, uh, to beg to help them get an affidavit, which was required to get a visa to come to the United States in the 1930s. And this talk is specifically about the Lehman family, which actually set up a family foundation, not only to, um, to bring people over, but also to set them up in business when they got to the United States. Now the story, do you all know who the Lehmans were, the Lehman no. family? The Lehman family is Lehman Brothers, the large economic uh, investment firm that, that um, fell apart, wasn't rescued by the government in 2008, and was the trigger for the world economic crisis in 2008. So this is the family. This is the town that they lived in in Germany, southern Germany, called Rimpar. And they came over in the 1850s, three brothers. 
and founded this cotton brokerage firm. And it was called Lehman Brothers. And this is Meyer Lehman, who is one of the three brothers, and the one for whom the fund that the, their, his children set up was named. Karen? Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but was at that point in Alabama, was that a port of entry? Um, no they, well, they actually came in through New York. Oh. They didn't actually come in and went, and went south. Um, Thank you. Yep. Mm -hmm. So this was what Lehman Brothers looked like in the mid-19th century when they moved up to New York. And that was the Lehman Brothers that caused the world financial crisis in 2008. Now my, some of you have asked about how I got into this. And um, I was a guest curator at the Museum of Jewish Heritage for an exhibition about the Morgenthau family and public service. And the Morgenthaus, um, as you may know, there were three generations. There was Henry Morgenthau Sr., who was ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Henry Morgenthau Jr., who was uh, Secretary of the Treasury during Roosevelt, and about whom this story also revolves. And then Robert Morgenthau, who was the district attorney of uh, New York City for 34 years. I have to just take an aside and just tell you a story about, personal story about Robert Morgenthau, because I also did work on his family tree, and he was very interested in it. And this legendary man, shortly before he died at the age of 99, I went to his office, and um, I was, we were chatting, and I was telling him family stories. And he turned to me and he said, honest to God, he said, you already told me that story. So, so much for the intellectual <laughs> capacity of this 98-year-old man. Okay. So while I was working on that exhibit, I came upon this most incredible document. It's called the Fourth Report of the Meyer Lehman Charity Fund. And this was this, and the family did not know what this was. And, and Robert Rogenthal's sister asked me to do some work on it. And I said, <clears throat> when the exhibit is done, I'll pursue it. And that's exactly what happened. And that's how I started this project with the family, which I've continued for over 10 years. So let's take the next one. So this family foundation was set up. And by the way, there were only two family foundations like this in the country, which were set up to help, uh, to help refugees. Does anybody have an idea who the other family was that set one up like this? Only two, which is rather amazing. It was the Warburgs. I don't know if you know that family, Pinkus Warburg. Um, so they decided to set up this fund. And the, one of the reasons was that Herbert Lehman was governor of New York State. And everyone in Europe knew that there was a Jewish governor. And when times got tough, they were desperate to find anyone in the United States who might be able to give them an affidavit. And he was inundated, inundated with requests for affidavits. So he set up his niece, uh, whose name was Dorothy Bernard, and she was the one who took care of all the requests from family members. Okay. Then even in 1942, or I think whenever that letter was, we have already given affidavits for a very large number of family members to come. Now, in 1942, when the fourth report was written, and by the way, when I started, I didn't know anything about reports number one, two, three, and there were several after, because what these reports were, various family members gave money, and we're talking $10,000, $5,000. Can you imagine how much money that was in 1942? 
He was, I mean, my grandmother was making $18 a week. That's unbelievable. Um, so in 1942, after they had given out 89 affidavits, staggering number, which only someone who had the financial means could possibly do, there were still uh, 39 who remained in Europe. And just, um, we're going to go through a few of the stories of these people, and I will tell you more. Those are all family members, all related? To the Lehmans, all family members. But of course, um, there's so many that go back. And what happened was, um, Herbert Lehman was the youngest of nine brothers and sisters. And his father, Meyer Lehman, was the youngest of nine brothers or sisters. So people would write to him and say, I'm your first cousin's yeah, you know, daughter. But his, the first cousin, his father's sister had moved out of, his father's sister was born in 1812. So if it was, and Herbert Lehman was born in the United States. He had no idea if these were legitimate people because hundreds wrote him. So he actually, part of the job of, the, of this foundation, of the people who worked in it, was to find out if it was really for real. And just as an aside, um, have any of you worked in an archives before or donated to an archives? Because what, what they do is they keep the important stuff and they throw out what they think is not important. And in these letters to Herbert Lehman, he says, show me proof that, you know, that you're related. And they would send the family trees. But the family trees were not important to the archivists. So they threw all the family trees out. So a lot of my job was to reconstruct. And it turns out that some of these families were related from 1742. That was the ancestor that they were shared in common. However, this a Fatalheimer, she was a first cousin of Herbert Lehman's father. Uh, of Herbert Lehman, sorry. First cousin, uh, yes, of, of Herbert Lehman's father. Some of the information about them I found in Yad Vashem. There's something called a page of testimony where people wrote what they knew sometimes is much more detailed than in the official records. And I just show you this because the woman on the very bottom, the undersigned person, uh, undersigned person who wrote this page of testimony, someone was just saying earlier, it's a very small world. And this woman who wrote it happened to be the mother of a synagogue member of the congregation that I belong to. And this is Governor Herbert Lehman the youngest son of Meyer Lehman, founder of Lehman Brothers. Uh, there are very few people. I think to today's world, we look for heroes desperately. And this man is my hero. He's a man of honor. He was so literate, and he was so compassionate. And it was so painful to him and to his secretary. Here's a man who has everything. He has money. He has power. He has a wonderful family. But he's powerless to bring most of these people out of Europe. Excuse me, how many brothers were the original? Three, there were three brothers. There were, there were four. Uh, there was a sister and three brothers of his. Emmanuel and Meyer, Emmanuel and Samuel. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. What were the dates when he was governor? When? Oh, Herbert Lehman, he was in office from, he followed Roosevelt, I think. So he was in office in the 1930s till 1940. I think in 1940 or 42, he became a senator. In, in, yeah. Um, 
This is Dorothy Bernard, and Dorothy Bernard was the niece who took care of the, of the fund. So a lot of the work was not just financially, but it was setting these people up. It was working with the refugee organizations to get money to Europe, and so on and so forth. And just a little story about this. So Dorothy, again, she wrote these reports to explain how the money was spent. And in each of the reports, she writes, so-and-so sent me flowers for, for Christmas or Hanukkah, and so-and-so sent me cookies, and I actually, and someone sent me candy. I actually found one of the original candy boxes that was sent to the family, which was one of the, the exciting parts of yeah, my work. Okay. This is an amazing story. The person in Herbert Lehman's office who did all the work with the refugees, her name was Carolyn Flexner, one of these women who was written out of history, so much so that when it came time to find a slide for her, I had to go to the University of Washington in St. Louis, where her family was from. That was the only photo I could get of, of her. She was the one who was, I hate to say it in this way, but she was responsible for who lived and who died, because she was the one who wrote those letters and said, I'm so sorry, I can't help you go to such and such a refugee organization. And in 1954, she was interviewed about the work that she did. And someone asked her, did any people die in Europe? And she said, no, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And it was a bold-faced lie, obviously. But it must have been so painful to her to have not have been able to help them. So. So here we go. These are the 89 people. And actually, by the time I got done making my lists and, and my Excel spreadsheets, there were several hundred people who were helped in different ways. And I want to, I'm going to do three cases, and then I'll tell you stories as your interest goes. But this is one of the most interesting cases. It's the case of Max Neugast. He was working for his uncle, his maternal uncle, Neugast um, Babette. Uh, Lehman was in Neugast, but that was Meyer Lehman's wife. He was working in a screw factory uh, in Nuremberg uh, that was Aryanized in 1938. And he knew it was time to get the heck out of Germany. So oddly, uh, he was a small minority of people who went to France, thinking that as soon as war broke out, he was going to be in the front lines of the Foreign Legion. But what happened was he was put into a camp in, in uh, France as soon as the government changed. He was put into a camp. I, was placed at the, I placed myself at the disposal of the French authorities immediately at the beginning of the war. This is from a letter that he wrote to Herbert Lehman. So he was thrown into a camp. The question is, which camp? He writes it in his letters, but which camp might it have been? that he was thrown into. And so I tried to get information from the uh, various French archives. They had no records of this. But I'm guessing that he was in a camp called Les Mis, which was later a transit camp. And that's a photo of what Les Mis looked like. But I can't prove it because I can't find the documents. And this is what the archivist wrote me from the Memorial de la Shoah. I find no documents with his name. So this is a letter he wrote to Herbert Lehman later that explains a little bit more. He writes, only through your assistance, affidavit uh, sent by Mrs. Bernard, was it possible for me to enter not only the US, but also to leave Morocco. 
where I lived for four months after my escape from France. That's a very loaded sentence there. So what was the story with his escape from France? We don't know. And what's the story with him escaping to Morocco? And then how did he get to the United States? This is one of, of the um, reports and of the research that I did. Many of the documents are in Columbia University Herbert Lehman Special Collections. Trying to piece these stories, they, they went all over the Dutch West Indies and in various camps to Africa and so on. But this story is amazing. So we know that uh, Vichy France allowed 50 ships with Jewish refugees to go to North Africa in 1940. And it could be that Max took advantage of this window of opportunity, at least to get out of France and go to Morocco. Then what happened to him? Well, just to show you, so Lemi is approximately here. So he got a boat and went to Casablanca in northern Africa. Yeah? You mentioned that Fr uh, France allowed 50 ships of refugees. Wow. To Morocco. To Morocco. North Africa. How, how was that accomplished? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know the details. I mean, these, there, there are all kinds of stories. Actually, if, if I forget to tell you a story about these ships that left later, it's part of one of the other stories. Um, let me know. I actually, I'm not an expert on that part of the history. And it was very hard to actually do the research to know what the story was of the Jews in Morocco and just wait to see what else happened to this Max. I'm going to ask you, Lisa, when <laughs> for the next one. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that, that's where we want to be. So I know a little bit from this Columbia University collection uh, where Carolyn Flexner writes that she's been trying to help Max Neugas, who is in a camp. So from this camp in France, he went to a camp in Morocco. And he had a sister living in New Jersey who was advocating for him, and she was in touch with the Lehmans to try and arrange his release during this entire time. Uh, and she writes that um, uh, Ms. Stern came to see me yesterday because I'm trying to get his brother out and complicated and so on. But there's something else in this letter that's most important, and we'll get back to it. So I don't know what camp he was in. In Morocco, there's not a lot of records. It's not entirely clear that he was in a camp or he wasn't just somewhere in Casablanca itself waiting out the four months because um, some of the camps were not set up until slightly later in the war. So how did I get information for this part of his adventure? There were materials at the Central Archives for the History of the Jewish People in Jerusalem. And there I found his card, his identity card. It seems that he was assisted by a woman whose name was Helene Benatar, who helped many of the refugees who came to Casablanca in their attempt to get out and get to the United States. And in here it also mentions, I think, his to mention his sister, it gives details, which unfortunately it gives his address in Casablanca and a little bit more. And from Casablanca, he went to Trinidad. So the question is how and why did he get to Trinidad from Casablanca? So we looked uh, in records from the Joint Distribution Committee, uh, and in fact, just as part of this, uh, next slide, we first looked online. We could not find them. Uh, so we actually had to go to the Joint Distribution Committee in New York City 
And there we found at the very top, that, I mean, it's, a, it's enlarged from the bottom, that Max Neugoss, Wayne's care of his sister Selma Stern uh, in New York City, was on a ship that's called the Winnipeg. Does anyone know what happened on the Winnipeg? The Winnipeg was not set to go to Trinidad. This is the Winnipeg. That's the ship that he went on. And there's a book that's written about it. And if it hadn't been for this book, we would not have been able to have pieced together his story. Six ships left Marseille and Vichy, France, headed to Martinique in 1941. Now, Martinique was still in Vichy, hold of Vichy, France. Max left on, uh, from Morocco on the Winnipeg. It had started in Marseille, stopped in Casablanca, and went on to go to Martinique. While it was on the way to Martinique, this is, uh, it was intercepted by a Dutch warship operating on behalf of the American British navies in the Caribbean. They suspected that these Jews who came from, or that the people on this ship were actually spies. So you have to imagine this is this um, Dutch warship that intercepts the ship. Max had now already been uh, interned in France, interned in, probably interned in Morocco, finally thinks he's going to get out uh, to Martinique. And what happens is, although the Winnipeg's crew did their best to signify neutrality, the passengers were awakened in the middle of the night and interrogated, all of them. So Max is now interrogated to see if he's a spy. Must have been incredibly frightening. He thought you were out of it and past it. And, and there you go. So most of the, the, the Winnipeg was rerouted to Trinidad. It was the last ship that was able to use this general route for exit. Most of the refugees hopped on a ship that went straight to New York. However, Max did not. And here is a, uh, he actually, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story, and it's one of hundreds. He hopped on a plane, and the plane stopped in Puerto Rico on the way to Miami. And we have the passenger record, and there's a, a um, you can see here with the detail, here he is, Max Neugas, German, arriving in Miami. He was on medical hold because he had poor eyesight. And this makes the story and the ones that follow even more interesting, that it was a man who really had this handicap that he was able to get here, and it had to do with the Lehmans. Here's his landing uh, card, and it, it's uh, everything that we already knew it has on it. He was, this Helene Benatar helped him get out. His sister was Selma Stern. Uh, he was a salesman, and he'd been in Morocco, and so on and so forth. So, one of the letters that Carolyn Flexner wrote to Dorothy Bernard, the one that explains how his sister Selma Stern had come to see him, this letter became, uh, came in very handy because it starts, Dear Dorothy, I think I have mentioned to you before that the nicest relative of the Lehmans I have met is Mrs. Julia Stern, who came in to have an affidavit signed. What a lovely thing, a simple woman who was working her hardest when she came to the United States, and that's what Dorothy Bernard wrote about her. So I thought, of all the different uh, archives that I had worked on and gone to, I hadn't gone to the family. 
So I traced Selma Stern's grandchildren, and I said, what do you have of your great uncle's things? Do you have documents? Do you have papers? Do you have stuff? And they said, who? They had no idea who he was because he had died fairly young. Their grandmother had died fairly young. They, they had, oh, he sounds a little familiar. But they had never heard of Max Neugas. And so I was able to say, well, you know, it's a shame you can't help me, but let me tell you what the Lehmans said about your grandmother. She was the nicest relative of the Lehmans they had met. It was very moving, and it was moving to them as well. Now, the second story is very powerful in its own way. It's about an artist, Emil Singer, who lived in Vienna and who was trying to get to the United States. A book was written about him, not published for the, uh, the public, but published privately by a retired minister in Wiesbaden, Germany, who is one of many of us who was captivated, captivated and wouldn't let go of the story of this artist, Emil Singer. So who was Emil Singer? He was a, I don't want to say two-bit, because I don't, I, as an art historian, I cannot say. But he, at the time that um, it, the uh, travel, tourism travel was becoming popular, so he was making lithographs that were sold to the tourists. He's a Jewish artist, came 1938, uh, and he needed to get out. Now, there was this uh, Ed Leffingwell, a doctor, who had gone, a non-Jewish doctor, had gone to Vienna to study medicine just before the war. He met Emil Singer. He was the first to be absolutely captivated and entranced by this Emil Singer. And he came back to his teeny tiny town in Sharon, Pennsylvania. And he, Emil Singer had written to him and said, please, I need to get out. Can you help me? So this non-Jewish doctor went to the um, druggist to, in, the, in the local drugstore, who was Jewish, and he said, please, you have to help me get this guy out of Vienna. And the druggist's name was Philip Elovich. And Philip Elovich's son is still around. He's 80-something years old and living in Maine. The second man to be absolutely captivated by the story and what they did was they had um, the artist Amos Singer send over these, these somewhat inexpensive um, etchings, and they sold them here to the people of the town of Sharon, Pennsylvania. It's kind of an amazing thing. And these two guys got everyone to buy the paintings and sent him money, but they still needed to get Amos Singer out. Now, I know a great deal of how this happened and, and what happened because the Amos Singer papers were donated to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. So they are available to read how it was. There's a whole story about how they tried to get them afterwards. But what an amazing story. Everyone in this town bought the paintings, Jews, non-Jews alike, to try and assist Amos Singer. There was another man, a distant cousin, whose name was Reginald Isaacs, and his children are also continued to be uh, influenced by the story of Emil Singer. Uh, and Emil wrote to his cousin Isaacs, and he said, I can't survive if you don't help me. And we know, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with the Lehmans already? How is it? Well, I found in the file from the Lehmans a letter that uh, the consul general is unable to give approval for the applications for their um, affidavit from 1940. 
So back to Philip Elovich. So the other thing I did in Sharon, Pennsylvania, was I discovered there was a rabbi I knew who grew up in Sharon, Pennsylvania. So he's an elderly rabbi. I went to him and I said, tell me about the community. Do you know of Leffenwell? Do you know of um, uh, the other guy's name, Elowich? And he said, of course I know them. Elowich was the local pharmacist. And he made the best sodas. And it was called a coffee swirl. That was the name. And how amazing, you know, this information really is still available to put a little bit of detail on these people from Sharon, Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. Now we have a new entry into the attempt to save Emil Singer, the artist. If you noticed before, that piece of art in Minneapolis, the first slide was donated by Dinard. And uh, Amos Dinard was a very famous attorney in Minneapolis. And this is the connection to Lehman. He wrote, Amos Dinard wrote to his friend Edward Warburg, the other family that assisted uh, relatives, Edward Warburg's uh, parents were um, um, Frieda Schiff and Felix Warburg, um, very wealthy, powerful family who donated their house to become the Jewish Museum in New York. So Amos Dinard wrote to Edward Warburg, and I, I, this is the most amazing letter. He's trying to get um, Herbert Lehman to help Emil Singer. So you got these, these people in Sharon, Pennsylvania who don't know him. And then you have Lehman and Warburg who are trying to help Emil Singer. So Warburg wrote, as you may know, this man is uh, about Amos Dinard. He wrote, um, as you know, this man is totally blind. And it is all the more amazing that he devotes himself tirelessly to Jewish work and is at every conference or meeting that is called. And he has always brilliant contribution to make Atlanta was no exception. I hesitate to bring this matter to you as the governor's attention, uh, or the, the governor's attention, as a bit far-fetched as, ironically, Dinard's opinion of the artist's work could have to be discounted. But I have so, because um, Dinard was blind. So here you have, so I'm sorry, I might not have uh, said it properly. Amos Dinard was active in the Joint Distribution Committee in Minneapolis. And he was a friend of Warburg's. And he wrote to Warburg and said, please help me get this artist out. But he, the guy who said it was blind. So Warburg still writes to Lehman and says, we want to get this artist out of Vienna. And they actually had the money. They had the money. They had the records. They, and they had the ship. Everything was set to go. And Emil Singer was deported to Auschwitz. And to me, this is the most powerful story. I mean, he had from the top down this support, and he still went to Auschwitz. He apparently was in his 60s, and he was an artist, and the State Department was not convinced that he would be able, even though the Lehmans vouched for him, that he would not be able to support himself as an artist in the United States. And so many people are captivated by this story, because it simply is, is really the whole story of, of what happened with the attempt to bring refugees to the United States. So his, his um, art is in the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, because that's where Amos Dinard purchased his, 
his work and then donated it and his son. And actually, there is one piece of his art that's in the Vienna City Museum that they know is looted. But of course, there are no, no heirs because he had no children and the rest of the family was murdered. However, I actually had the guts to look on eBay. And there was one of his paintings or his etchings on eBay. So I purchased it for the whopping amount of, what was $108. So I have an Amos singer. So I am smitten with the story of this man. Yes. It's a great question whether it came from Sharon. I actually called the guy who had put it up for auction, and he said it, it had belonged to some couple in Cape Cod and from, from in the state. So we'll never know. I did also try and track down all, some of the art that was sold in Sharon. There was a list of the people who purchased it. I wasn't very successful. What happened was even Ed Leffingwell's son, that story was not retained. It wasn't important to them because it was an Amos Singer. And Amos Dinard, the son who donated it in Minneapolis, also didn't know about his father's work. Yeah? What year did you purchase it? I'm sorry? What year? What year did I purchase it? I purchased it probably about five years ago. But I think you know it really depends on who's looking at eBay and understands who uh, Amos Singer is. So next one, we're almost. So there is Emil Singer, the book from this retired pastor in Wiesbaden who's also smitten, also because of the, his artistic work as well. So the last case is the Bürdigheimer family. Completely different story. When I began, so this I took actually at the time that I was doing the research, you saw what the Yad Vashem page looked like. This is how the Yad Vashem pages used to look like, and it was a family of three. It was... Uh, Gunter Bertigheimer, and you can see that the place of death is Gours, concentration camp in, or holding camp in France. His wife, Betty Rieselheimer Bertigheimer, also a place of death was Gours. And the son, Bernd Bertigheimer, born in 1934, who also died in Gours. So that's how I began. They had been on that list that Dorothy Bernard had written about people still in Germany. So I don't want to give you a whole history, which you may already know, but uh, in order to be even more obstructive at the time, to uh, help Jews not being able to get their family in, they switched the um, rules for affidavits in the spring of 1941. And anyone who already had an affidavit in process had to completely rewrite that affidavit application. So in this case, Dorothy Bernard yet again sent another affidavit for them, and you had to write the address of where the people were living in Europe at the time. And by that time, they were already in the camp. The Jews in um, uh, that part of Germany had, were sent to France in the fall of 1940 from Baden. And it even has, I don't know if you can see, but I have a close-up. They were in Rivesalt in France. And it even has their bunk numbers where, where they were at the time. And Dorothy Bernard writes, uh, for three years I've been trying to bring them over. This is May 1942, she writes this. And Gunter um, Bertigheimer, he didn't die in Gors, but he went first to Lemy and then to Auschwitz. And the date of this is, um, I think it's August 13, 1941, I believe, this note, that was, this card that was made. 
and I'm sorry, 42, August 14, 1942. It wouldn't have mattered because the government issued its final ruling that um, he was unable to receive it, a visa on August 13th, the day before. So it was too late anyway. However, I, he was out. He was uh, sent to Auschwitz on the 14th, 1942. However, Bert Bertigheimer did not die in the Holocaust. He was sent to a, um, I'm sorry, to an orphanage, Bruvene uh, Chateau, whatever, where he lived for some months, and that's what it looked like. And there he is, his wedding photo from some years later, the 1960s, uh, with his wife. Uh, and one of my favorite stories, so how did I find out more about him? How did I track him down? I found out from his cousins, but from his mother's side and his father's side. And I heard two very interesting stories. The one was that this guy said, I remember greeting Bernd uh, when he came. He said, I was in New York on the dock. And I saw him when he came to the United States. It was January, and he was wearing shorts. I couldn't believe that he was wearing shorts. Well, the story was they got to Marseille in uh, the summer, and he couldn't get on a ship after the war until January, and that's when he arrived in the United States. And the second story is shortly after he arrived, he had his bar mitzvah. And he used to tell his family that he got so many wallets for his bar mitzvah, this was before they were giving fountain pens, I guess. And he said, that's the stupidest gift. He said, I didn't have any money. I know all these people were sending him wallets for his bar mitzvah. His mother, Betty, lived to the age of 100 in New Jersey. And she had gone from orphanage to orphanage after the war. She, she survived in hiding also. And she went from orphanage to orphanage to find him. I think that's the last slide. Did she find him? I'm sorry? Did she find him? She found him. She found him. And I was in touch with the family and the children, and there's all kinds of stories about Bernie, who had changed his name to Bernie Bowden living, when he was living in New Jersey. Um, I want to tell you just a few more stories and then certainly open it up for questions. There have been um, part of the, the most wonderful part of the story is for me to call up people, the descendants, and tell them that they have papers at Columbia University, extended correspondence with their families uh, through this period, periods that they knew little about. And one of the most bizarre and moving experiences was, I also do research in looted art and, try, and restitution and returning books. One of the families they helped, the name was Gerst. And I was looking through the looted art list of books that were available. And sure enough, there was one for Walter Gerst. He was on the family tree. And so I looked up and figured out and saw that his daughter was living in camp. I was so excited. It was a Friday night. And I found this. And I have to call this person. I have to call her right now, the daughter of Walter Gerst. I figured this out. But it was Friday night. And Kansas City, it was just be right before Shabbos. And I called up, and there was this woman on the line, and she said, do you know it's Shabbat? It's Friday evening. And I said, I'm terribly sorry you had a Kansas, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she said, do you know I'm a cantor? <laughs> so I was apologetic all over the place. And I told her about the book that could be restituted. And she said, well, 
I know it was a book, I think it belonged, sorry, belonged to her grandfather, Hans Gerst. And Hans Gerst was rescued by the Lehmanns. So that was the connection. So I knew all about her grandfather, Hans Gerst, who the, the book belonged to. And she said, I really don't know anything about Hans Gerst because my father was an infant when his parents were divorced. And I know nothing about my grandfather. This is a canter now. Never bothered to look either to learn more about her grandfather because apparently it was such a terrible story. And I thought about it for a moment and I said, did you know your father was, your grandfather was in Dachau? And she had no idea and she was a canter. It's kind of an amazing story and, and certainly part of this tragedy of the separation of families at, the, at that time. So I'll, I'll tell you one more Hans Gerst story. And that was Hans Gerst had a daughter that the Lehmanns supported people when they came to this country. You were under their care. They supported you for your whole life if you needed it. And there was a case where this Hans Gerst had a daughter who died very young, leaving two young children. And Edith Lehman, Herbert Lehman's wife, wrote to Dorothy Bernard's sister in 1974 and said, we need to support the children of this, this woman who was dying. It's, it's our responsibility. And when we had the exhibition in the Museum of Jewish Heritage, she came to the exhibition, the granddaughter, the daughter of this woman who died young. And I handed her the letter, which, uh, which said, it's our family responsibility to take care of this child, these children. And to me, that's, that's what the Lehmans were about. It was 1975, and they were still taking care of their relatives that they brought you over. They were responsible to you for your whole life. So I have lots more stories, but I would like to entertain your questions. Yeah. Um, the Lehman Foundation, I guess, is no longer in existence? Well, this one is not. There are many other Lehman Foundations that do other things, but the Meyer Lehman Charity Fund is not. Good question. I can imagine what you're what you're thinking about. Other questions? Yeah. Can right. you talk about the affidavit process? You mentioned that they had 89 elements. Okay, so the affidavit, it was required that um, there was someone who would be financially capable of sustaining you if you fell on hard times. And you had to prove that you would be able to earn a living while you were here. Uh, they were worried, as they are today, that they would go on the public dole. The problem was there wasn't a public dole at that point uh, in the 1930s. So these family members had to show uh, what they earned. And of course, you couldn't have too many people uh, who you were uh, responsible for. And it was supposed to be a close relative who would take care of you. That's why it's so remarkable that the Lehmans were able to get affidavits for so many people. But despite the fact that he was the um, a senator, actually, at the, at the time he was governor of New York State, I have that application that he filled out just the same as everybody else to prove he was financially capable of supporting these people when they came to this country. And so that was, a, that was what you needed. You needed an affidavit to get a visa in order to enter the United States. And we grew up calling get sponsors. Someone they were the sponsors. sponsors. Yes, same thing. Same thing with the affidavit. Other questions? Or I'm trying to think of the, yeah. Kind of going back to Mr. Lehman, it, it, it's amazing to me that he was elected as a governor, elected as a 
-hmm. He was a practicing Jew, I assume. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it just amazes me because of the turmoil in the world. Well, I, I will tell you a story about him. I did some work for Williams College, and it was about the early Jews of Williams because there were only a few of them prior to the First World War. And so it happens that Herbert Lehman was one of them. I did some research. Someone else actually wrote the book. And in this, he, I mean, he, he wrote about the Jews were not allowed to belong to this club or that club, and there were all these things that happened to them. Herbert Lehman was the exception. He was the first and only Jew for 50 years who was allowed to join this honors honor society at Williams College. He must have been an amazing, amazing person. And his generosity uh, knew no bounds. I had to read through all these letters at Columbia. One after the next, would you buy my, vi you know, from a, from a refugee, would you buy my violin? Can you take care of the corner of such and such? You know, it's my property, I can't get rid of it. And most of them, he, of course, he had to say no. The one he said yes to was a man who needed a wooden leg. This child, I don't know, was an orphan, whatever it was, and he sent money for the wooden leg. And he, he was just a remarkable humanitarian. So I, I think that, that the people of New York felt that and knew that. Yeah. Other questions? What are you working on now? What am I working on now? I have to think I'm working on so many things. For, um, well, I do. Um, I worked Leo Beck and helped lots of people with their family history. I still continue this work in a, in a much more limited way. Um, I do work with memorial museums uh, around the world. But what I occupy myself with on a daily basis, I say, and I, I say this, um, I hope you understand it properly, I do genealogies for the rich and famous. And, and, and that's what I do. And um, it's a lot of fun because the families are very interesting. So, um, and are you going to be on TV like uh, Gates Jr.? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, there was a um, an NP, NPR program called "We'll Meet Again" that was on about two or three years ago, and I'm in the pilot um, for that show. We want with Ann Curry. We want with Ann Curry. Right? Yeah, come and come and watch me on the show. Um, so, so I mean, I could, I could hopefully entertain you with some stories about some of these rich and famous clients. I do little books for them, and the, it, some of them have quite a few um, skeletons of the family trees, and the only one that ever refused to allow me to put the skeletons in the closet on their family tree <laughs> were two sisters, and they said, our grandmother was an opera singer, but my grandfather, after they got married, wouldn't allow her to sing in the opera anymore. Could you find out which operas she sang in? Well, do you know the end of the story? She was no opera singer. It's called Vaudeville. <laughs> so they said, no, please don't put that in the report. Um, so I'm happy to answer personal questions you have, genealogy questions you have. Can do it quietly afterwards, particularly if there are any skeletons you do not wish to put in front of the crowd. I, I do not in any way mean to peddle my wares or convince you to have your family history done, but I wish you luck. And yes, one last question. When, oh, well, when you go into archives like that, how do you know where to start digging? It just seems like it's so global. How do you, how do you funnel it? Well, <clears throat> 
One of my clients, uh, rich and famous, was Robert Caro. I don't know if you know who he is. He wrote the oh, book sorry. about Johnson. That's a long story, too. I refuse to write for people like Robert Caro. I have two other Pulitzer Prize winners that also to work for. That's not a good idea. If you would see my running writing, you would kind of get that. But Robert Caro uh, is just, he's making the lecture circuit now, talking about his research. And what he says is, you don't leave any stone unturned. You look at everything. That's, that's his line. So part of the answer to the question is the, the work at um, the um, Central Archives for the History of Jewish People. There was someone in Israel who helped me with that. He happened to know those collections. So it's really about knowing who to ask for the information. Uh, when my uh, assistant went online and looked for the material, the ship records, they weren't online. She had to go there and ask the experts, and they knew where to find it. So a lot of it is knowing the right people to help you with material you might not otherwise know about. Mm -hmm. Okay, ask me questions privately. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.